Acts chapter 13. Open your Bible or your electronic gizmo. And I know some of you guys, when you open that gizmo, you're on Twitter. <laughs> what was that busted? Acts chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 42. But uh, just for context, remember the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch uh, in Pisidia, not Antioch in Syria. Uh, they started out in Antioch in Syria, went across to the uh, island of Cyprus and worked their way across the island and then traveled north across the Mediterranean Sea to the coast. And then probably Paul got sick and uh, there in Pathos. But um, they had gone up into the mountains. Actually, uh, there's a high plain up there. The steppes is what it's called. Uh, that covers a lot of Asia. And they had, climbed, they had hiked up uh, to uh, this place called Antioch, in, uh, formerly a province of Pisidia. It used to be a Roman province, but when the Pisidian king died, they rolled it into Galatia. That's why we're calling this series of teachings the Galatians, not Galatians the letter, because he comes back after this missionary journey, and there are some real problems that erupt. Well, let's look at those <laughs> beginning next week uh, when... They travel east, but uh, uh, he comes back from this first missionary journey and, and writes a letter back to the Galatians because they were getting some things terribly wrong that would have eternal consequences. So anyway, he has been outlining Israel's history, uh, not just a history lesson, but redemptive history. We talked about that. And has been going, systematically going through, starts in Genesis, talks about the fathers of the nation and works his way through, goes through the Exodus and then on through the historic section of uh, what we look at in our Old Testament and Joshua all the way through. Talks about the Psalms. Uh, and then he ends up with a warning. And we looked at that last week. He says, look, you need to heed the things that were spoken of in the prophets or the things that the prophets spoke of concerning judgment will come upon you. And uh, he's addressing this crowd and speaking with power and authority. Uh, and I think about the people here in the synagogue, uh, which is where he's speaking, uh, this, as we looked at last week, they had never heard anything like this before. They were accustomed to hearing the law of Moses read and then people maybe expounding on it through um, looking at the Torah or, or looking at their interpretation of it and all. And yet they had never heard a message about the grace of God, about the love of God. And these people were moved. They were absolutely moved. And that's my prayer for us as we study and we look at these things that we come to a place of applying them to our lives. So in verse 42, we read, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue and the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them again the next Sabbath. So there's a couple of things going on here. Why would they be begging them to please tell us some more? Well, first of all, they were hungry. And this, the words that Paul had spoken taken by the Holy Spirit, driven into their hearts, because that's how it works. That's how God works. It's, it's the Spirit of God 
taking the words of God and driving them into the hearts of the people of God. And, and this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit has been poured out, uh, th- that's God's desire as he's reaching these people. He's planting a church here in Antioch. Uh, and, and people are being moved. And so they say, please tell us some more. Come back. The other thing about that, I think about if, if they were sitting there listening to this and they're thinking, my wife needs to hear that. Now, not that your wife does or my husband or I can't, I need to bring my family back because this is just powerful stuff. I've never heard anything like this. And so they're saying, please give us some more. That's what happens with spiritual hunger, guys. When when we become hungry for the, the things of God, uh, I remember when I first got saved, and, and even now when I sit down to study to prepare for this, uh, there's just a hunger there. It's just like, I got to know more. I got to understand this. I, I want to understand the intricacies of God's word. I, I want to be able to convey this to your people accurately as I teach and all of that. Well, uh, it's because that spiritual dynamic is at work. It was not at work any longer as they read the law of Moses. Was it good? Yes, of course, the law is good. But, but, Jesus had come. He'd gone to the cross. The covenant, he said, a new covenant I give you. This covenant in my blood. Not the covenant according to the, the blood of bulls and goats and so on. The other thing about that, I think about it, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, he says, these things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. This is not the wisdom of men here, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul, as he is expounding on these things, he is giving them what God has given him And it's a powerful experience, a moving experience for for these people. They can't wait to come back. As a matter of fact, in verse 43, it says, When the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. We can't get out of here. You know, and they're trying to get away from them, but they leave the synagogue and these people are... They're crowding after them and saying, Wait, we want to talk to you some more about this. And it says that they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. I love that. Folks, it's easy for us to understand that we are saved by grace, and we are. There is no other basis by which we can stand before God than in his grace, throwing ourselves upon his mercy. You know, Lord, (laughs) they think about... In Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then Isaiah's cleansed there. We need to get into all of that. Uh, Same thing. When Peter saw Jesus out in the boat, he quotes Isaiah because he understood his condition in light of a holy God. And so... They understand that it's only by the grace of God that one can come into a relationship with him. You look at Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, look, you've been told, and he goes into the oral tradition of the law. He says, but I tell you. And then he gives them the spirit in which it was written. You've been told not to look upon a woman with lust, 
But I'm telling you that if that's what you've done, you've already, you're, you're guilty of that. I've, you, you've been told that he goes down the list of the law of Moses, but then he gives them the spirit of the law, which is utterly condemning. He says, therefore, he concludes all of that by saying, therefore, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Does that mean that we need to be perfect? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are two ways to get to God. You can be perfect, absolutely perfect in every conceivable way, or you can throw yourself upon his mercy and receive his grace and understand that salvation comes by grace. But more than that, what he says here is you need to continue in the grace of God. In in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So it's not just saving grace. It's sustaining grace. And some things happened this week, some things that came up, and I spoke out of turn one point and ended up having to apologize to somebody. But, but it was like, you know, I am just so grateful, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. I'm so grateful that my life is sustained, not by my behavior, which can sometimes be off. And I know, don't give me Sunday faces. I know yours is too. <laughs> but the point is, you know, it's not by my behavior. It's by his grace. It's by him sustaining me. We are utterly, utterly reliant upon the grace of God. So Paul encourages them. He says, look, let me persuade you to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44, and so on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, I want to pause there for a minute. (laughs) One of my companies, we we did work for uh, uh, one of the resorts, uh, I think it was Caesars Tahoe for a few years we changed their entertain every week they'd have entertainers and we would paint all their billboards with different entertainers and one time uh the entertainment copy that we got to go put up on all these signs all over the place all over northern california was david copperfield and i love david copperfield so i was talking to the advertising manager at caesar's tahoe and and I said, yeah, Danny, I just love this guy. And she says, well, let me comp you some tickets. So she actually sent us six tickets. And it was a great show. And the people came out, the auditorium was packed. And I thought, that was wonderful. One thing about it is it was a novel experience. You understand what a novel experience is? I go for the novelty of it all. And, and and it was a very novel thing. And that's not a bad thing. Not at all. However, what we're looking at here is not the power of novelty. This is the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God. And that's what traveled through the city. That's why the place was packed out the following Saturday. And, and folks, we can we can get into a mindset where we're looking for the novel thing. We're looking for the new thing. We want the, the shiny object, you know, the kind of the magpie thing. <laughs> and yet there is nothing, nothing that will satisfy us on the level of our soul, in, in our spirits, 
short of the word of God, brought to us again by the spirit of God. So it's this whole, it says the entire city. And you know, I was reading some commentaries and one of them said, oh, this is hyperbole. Hyperbole means you overstate for the sake of making a point. I don't really think so myself. I think that almost the whole city turned out. Uh, on the title slide for this morning's message, there's the ruins of uh, an outdoor amphitheater in Antioch, Pisidia. As you can see back there, I see everybody's eyes looking up. And and those ruins are there. Uh, just uh, And I started looking at that and I thought, uh, and one of the commentaries I, I was reading said, yeah, they probably didn't have room. I mean, if the whole city turns out, you ain't going to get everybody into the synagogue. And so the most logical place would have been in this amphitheater. So think about it. It's like they're there and people start piling in. They go, wait a minute. Well, this is overwhelming. We've got to move this thing. And so they move it probably. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I mean, you have to look at logistically. If the whole city turns out almost, you need to have a place to put these people. And so my personal opinion, and that's what it is, is they moved it to the amphitheater. (laughs) <laughs> and so you've got this huge crowd of people because Antioch is a substantial city. This huge crowd of people, word is flashed through the crowd through the whole week because these guys spoke with, they spoke a message that they weren't accustomed to hearing. I mean, these are devout Jews and proselytes, it says. Uh, a proselyte being a, a Gentile who had converted to Ju- Judaism and Remember, there was also the God-fearers in there, that those that were interested in the God of Israel, but they had not converted to, to Judaism. So you've got all these people that are hungry, and, and these guys are speaking with authority. And I want to tell you, this is revival, one heart at a time. What's happening in this, in this city is the people are waking up to the reality of not only the new covenant, but to the reality that Jesus is a risen and living Lord. And folks, we can get, we can get bogged down in religion. We get bogged down into thinking that, yeah, we've kind of got it wired. We can get bogged down in, in our ritualistic stuff and move away from the reality and the vibrancy of what it is to walk with the Lord, of what it is to get up in the morning and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? I just want to encourage you. When Jesus wrote through the Apostle John, the apocalypse, the letters to the seven churches, ignore that horn going off in the background, (laughs) because I can't. Uh, But when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said, I have one thing against you. You're doing all the right stuff. You're going through the motions. But I want to tell you, you've left your first love. You're doing it by rote, essentially. And he says, repent, therefore, and return, because I will take away your light. I will take away your candlestick if you don't. So uh, just again, I think about that with what's going on here. Almost the whole city comes together. They want to hear the word of God. They're not there for a novel experience. Uh, they're not there because, you know, they, they want to see a show. And you guys know how I feel about that. I, you know, I refuse to, to turn the church into an entertainment venue. Why? Because it's novel. Because it appeals to the flesh. 
And, and that's not what we're here for. We're here for the word of God. And, and I want you to notice the term, the word of God is all through this passage. We'll talk about that when we get to the end this morning. So what's the people's response? Now, what the this tail end of Acts 13 records for us is the response mainly of the religious leaders. And then the civic leaders get involved to get them all wound up. And the response is not good. But I love the way that Paul and Barnabas handle it. It says in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. I'm going to pause right there. Now, the word envy and the word jealousy very often are are used synonymously. uh, And yet, the reason this is translated envy in the New King James is because the context dictates that that's the case. Now, I want to give you the, the, how to understand the difference between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is you've got one, I want one. Okay? I'm jealous of what you've got. I want that. Envy is you've got one, I want yours. Right, so the Jews look out at this thing and they think, you've got one, I want yours. We are not drawing big crowds. We don't have the whole city turning out. We've got to move it to the end. We don't have any of that stuff going on. We're just simply going through and doing what we've always done. And so they, be, they get wound up with envy. They, they begin to, to think, you know, that's not, that's not how things go for us. And it wouldn't be the first time. Uh, in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry, there were, I, I love the scene there because John records for us that when Lazarus had been risen from the dead, that there's a huge crowd of people that gathered in Bethany over the hill, the Mount of Olives, uh, and that, that when Jesus came in and he rode into town on the donkey that day, uh, that this crowd came with him down the hill. There was also a huge crowd in the city that were anticipating him, and they came out. And so you have these two crowds converging together, and I'm telling you, it must have been a scene. Well, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, uh, they had this to say in John 12, 19, it says, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. They're saying this among themselves. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And then they follow that, just going to paraphrase, we need to kill this guy. We need to get rid of him. We, this has got to go. This is unacceptable. Look at the crowds he's drawing. I mean, huge crowds. And look at what's happening with us. Envy. All right? Very clearly. And that's the pattern here. Uh, look, <laughs> since they're contradicting, they're blaspheming, they're opposing the word of God. The word of God. But folks, you know, a very wise brother, uh, still a, a dear friend, close friend, pastor, Calvary Chapel down in Gridley, where I was for many years, uh, in Northern California, told me once, he said, you know, John, people are going to say things to you that sometimes are going to come off pretty brash, maybe even insulting. And people, I mean, because people are people. You're, as you, and this is very early on in the ministry. This is like in the late 80s, I think. Uh, and he said, what you've got to do when you take that to the Lord, 
you got to ask yourself one question. I said, well, what's that, Brad? And he said, you got to ask and, and ask the Lord, hold it up to the Lord and say, is it true? Simply, is it true? You, you got to get past the personal insults because very often people don't mean anything by it. But it's simply asking yourself if it's true. That's not happening with the people here. It's not happening with the religious leaders. They don't want to deal with the truth and they do what <laughs> you don't have to look at very many headlines to see what's going on around us in our culture, in our government, and in what's happening in the days in which we lived where people don't want to deal with truth, objective truth, not my truth. That drives me bonkers when I hear, well, my truth is, well, my, yeah, I don't care what your truth is. What is the truth? You know, subjective reality. And it's, it's a thing. It's being taught. It's being promoted. And it's sort of like if I take you out in, into the parking lot and I say, I want you to come and see my yellow car. And you walk out there and you say, uh, John, that car's not yellow. Well, it's, it's yellow to me. That's my truth. I don't care. Your car is silver. Well, maybe that's how you see it, but that's not how I see it. And and the whole thing with identity, politics, I'm not going to get off into all of that, but that is very, very common these days. And yeah, I'm overstating something very obvious. These guys didn't want to deal with the truth of God's word. So what is their answer? They get worked up. It's not about the message at this point. It's about the messenger. And they get worked up and they want to just get rid of these guys. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to look. You know, fingers in the ears, la, 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 la. One problem doesn't change the fact that it's true. Look, we're told that that, um, in the Gospel of John, that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. And with these guys, they are totally steeped in the law of Moses. Again, this is a new, this is a new message to them. They're, they're really kind of rocking on their heels. They're, they're like, wait a minute. I, we haven't heard this before. And, and yeah, I, yeah, I'm not trying to side with them, but I, there's a certain degree to which you're going, okay, they don't know how to deal with this because the gospel coming in to these guys who had just, they had been spent their entire life studying law. And now they're being told it's the grace of God and that the truth of God is that the, 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 the law of Moses is no longer in effect. That would have been very, very difficult for many of them to grapple with. But the point is, human nature is, is if you don't want to do business with the message, you reject the messenger. And that's exactly what they're doing. So uh, in verse 46, it says that Paul and Barnabas grew bold. I love that. Now the word boldness here, uh, in the book of Acts, the word bold or boldness is used 11 times. It's way more than any other book in the New Testament. The question occurs to me, why? And it's because, uh, I believe, because every time, and I looked, started looking around and rooting around in the book of Acts, it's connected with people walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, yeah, it's not listed in the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's, and yeah, I learned a ditty in school how to do that. But the point is, is that it's not listed there, but it is absolutely a fruit of the Spirit. I pray for boldness. I pray for boldness with my family. I, I've been praying for more boldness in, in these last couple of months that because there's a sense of urgency that we need to have. As, as the Lord, I believe, is drawing this age to a close, and whether he does or not, my life's going to draw to a close at some point. <laughs> Hopefully not again anytime soon. But the point is, is that um, we need to have a sense of boldness. We need to be willing to risk. Uh, I, I need, and, and I have a brother that is in, he lives in Seattle and, and, and he has pushed hard against the gospel at times. And, and because I love him and because I know that you know, he's a few years older than I am and not in the greatest health, I, I pray, Lord, just let me be bold with him. Let me speak the truth in love. Yeah, it doesn't mean bold. That doesn't mean be a jerk <laughs> about it. But let me speak the truth in love, but let me not hold back. Well, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas, they're not holding back here. It says that they, they grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God, there's that term, the word of God, that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. This is a pivot point. I don't want you to miss that. This is their flatly stating the Jewish people rejected Messiah. They're rejecting the message. They're rejecting now the word of God. And, and you know, and, and he says, we're, we're not going to, we're going to bring it to people who will receive it. They saw, and it's no mistake to, I don't think it's a mistake that Luke put an emphasis on the Gentiles' response to this whole message that Paul preached the the week before at the synagogue. It was the Gentiles. Yeah, there were the the Jews and the proselytes. Yeah, but the Gentiles were the ones that were begging them, give us some more. He says here, you reject it. And in rejecting it, you're judging yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That is an intense statement. There's cause and effect. We were talking about that not long ago. Uh, and, and in my life, I, I've had, there have been people in my life that, that I look and I see, okay, there's all these decisions over here. And then there's, their life is an absolute train wreck over here. And, and, and I've thought they need to see that there's a cause and effect. You keep making bad decisions, your life's going to be a wreck. And unfortunately, there are people that it's like they don't, they don't connect those dots. And what he's saying here, guys, you need to connect the dots. If you're going to reject the word of God, you're judging yourself. Period. If you're going to reject the word of God, yes, God's judgment will be upon your life. 
if you reject Christ. But you've essentially rejected the message of the gospel. You've essentially brought judgment upon yourself. And that's what he's saying. And again, personal responsibility here, because we're going to talk in a minute about predestiny. Well, here he's talking about personal responsibility. Talking about, you're choosing this. All right? So, and there are people, boy, we get into this whole deal (laughs) about predestiny and, and free will and all, and I'll talk about it in a minute. But here, I want you to, I don't want you to miss the fact that he is talking about this is your choice. This is what you are choosing. You are choosing to reject. And in choosing to reject, you're rejecting life itself. He says, we turn to the Gentiles. Uh, we know that in Romans 9 through 11, that uh, if you were around during our studies in Romans, that their rejection is partial. All right? It's not absolute. The Jews rejected the gospel. Paul tells us there in Romans that the gospel went to the Gentiles in part, yes, to save those who would want to be saved. Absolutely. But in part to make the Jews jealous to say, look, (laughs) you know, you can say you've got one. I want yours all day long, but you've got the opportunity to have your own. And they said, no. And God said, all right, that's fine. Another thing about that. Is when you're sharing with people and they reject the message. Yeah, Jesus said, you know what? They hated me and they're going to hate you. Why? Because the words that you speak are my words if you're speaking the word of God. That's true. And, and in rejecting him, very often it looks like they're rejecting him. Paul and Barnabas are not doing well with this crowd. They are being rejected. And yet... They knew and they were confident that, you know what? If you don't want to hear the message, if you don't want to be a part of this, nobody's going to put you in a half Nelson and force you to do it. We'll take the message to those who want to hear it. And that's just a great piece of advice in our lives because not everybody's going to pat you on the head and tell you what a wonderful person you are when you share the gospel with them. (laughs) Not very many at all at times. And if people are rejecting, don't let that bum you out. Don't let that discourage you. You're going to find out. You're going to see here. These guys go, they go forward with great joy. They get kicked out of the city. And they've got the joy of the Lord, man. They can't wait to get to the next place. Why? Because they were confident that God had called them to share the gospel. And if these guys don't want to hear it, okay, that's your choice. And, and, Understand, too, that God loves enough that he respects our choice, that he will let us choose, and he will respect that choice. Now, he goes on in in verse 47, he quotes Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, for the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light unto the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. What was God's design For Israel, all along, it wasn't for them to become puffed up and arrogant and exclusive. (laughs) Ha ha, we have the oracles of God and you don't. So, neener, neener. No, that wasn't it at all. Well, I don't think they use that. 
<laughs> What's the Greek word for neater, neater? At any rate, no, I don't think that they did that, but that was their attitude. They became arrogant and haughty and puffed up that they were the ones, they were God's special people. But all along, God's revealed will for these people was that they be a light to the nations, that they be the, the vessels through which the love of God could be communicated to others. And they go, no, 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 you're threatening our little club here. Churches do that sometimes. Again, uh, I look at that and I think, on what basis do you have for thinking that this is an exclusive club? We're, yeah, I get, there's social gratification from being in fellowship with you all. But that's not the, 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 the primary purpose that we gather. We gather to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. We gather to be built up. Because the world out there is going to tear you down. And yet we come. We set aside the things of the world for a little while. And we avail ourselves of the word of God. Because I want, I, I want to have that attitude of bread of heaven, feed my soul. So that when I go out, when I'm interacting with the world, that I have the right attitude, that I'm adjusted, that I understand that I'm an ambassador for Christ. That I understand that the ministry of reconciliation has been given to each and every one of us. You know, I, I've heard Christians say before, well, primarily my ministry is uh, just to other Christians. Well, that's fine. But the ministry of reconciliation is for all of us. We're, we're strangers in a strange land, and, and we have a call in our lives to reconcile a lost world to Christ. And to, do, to fall short of that, it would be to adopt the attitude to one degree or another that the Jews are adopting here. And Paul, he rebukes them for it. He says, look, you're supposed to be a light to the nations. And you're so hung on your stuff, you're so envious because the crowds are following us because the message we speak is truth and life that in rejecting that, you're rejecting life itself. Verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, <laughs> he just said all this to the Jews. So, uh, And it uh, cracks me up in a way because when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. <laughs> and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believe. There's the flip side. Paul has just finished saying, all right, you Jews, you're choosing death. You're choosing to reject. But then what Luke interjects here, because there are two sides, of it's two sides of the same coin, folks. You've got to understand that predestination is a thing. And if you want to know if you're predestined, this is the advice I give people. You want to know if you're predestined? Choose Christ. It's really that simple. Because both concepts, both doctrines are taught, both are true. And my predestined, was I predestined, as he says here, um, was I appointed to eternal life? Yeah, I, I believe I was. I think that there's adequate proof that I was. So were you, if you belong to Christ. That doesn't change the fact that we have a free will. Both are taught, both are true, and one falls apart without the other. 
It's not just. Now, and when Luke wrote this and he's relating the things that Paul had to say, I don't think anybody said, well, let me see. Calvin teaches this. You know, does this fall within the five points of Calvin? Well, Arminius taught that, and those are the two big proponents that theologians look at. Um, Calvin taught predestiny to the exclusion of free will. I mean, to one degree or another, depending on what arm of Calvinism you look at. Arminius was another guy, and, and he taught free will to the exclusion of predestiny. No, both of them are true. Ignore those guys. And, and what they have to say is good. Don't ignore them, but understand that it's both. It's about balance. I have absolute confidence that I was called to belong to him. And I also know there was a point in time where I said, you know what? Like the, the words to that song, the chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. Verse 49, in the word of the Lord, there it is again. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Okay, so now it's gone from a few people in the synagogue that day, <laughs> last week, to the whole city showing up and, and essentially being evangelized by these two guys, these two evangelists, Paul and Barnabas, to where now it's, it's, it's like a forest fire. It is just spreading. So it's gone from a few to many to the multitudes. That's the effect that the word of God has. And I'll tell you what, I pray, and I, I hope you pray as well. I pray for revival. And I don't mean it in the sense of the classic, you know, the tent with the preacher with the thin tie and all of that. No, I'm talking about revival one heart at a time. And it begins in the house of God. It begins with the hearts of God's people being revived. One of the prayers I have for this church, and, and I'm, uh, I will speak it, it's not <laughs> anybody in particular, is that we not be focused inward to the point where we're not reaching out. It can happen, and it can happen in congregations real easily. I pray that we individually have hearts that are revived and that we see the critical importance of reaching out and bringing these words of life to others. As I mentioned, time is short, and I look at people in my family and I think, you know what, if you don't turn, you're going to die. I don't know how to get any more blunt than that. I look at people that I love and I think, you're going down the wrong road. Lord, give me boldness that I can speak the truth in love. Whether they reject it or not is totally between them and God. And unfortunately, many do. That shouldn't bum me out because I can have confidence going that if you're going to reject it, I'm going to take this message to somebody that won't. Paul and Barnabas do that here they they essentially tell the Jews, look, in rejecting this, you're rejecting life. And the very next verse is, wow, the Gentiles heard they were glad. They glorified the word of the Lord as many as have been appointed to eternal life. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. It didn't stop the effectiveness of the word of God. Why? Because there's power. It has its own power you don't need to be a slick salesman. As a matter of fact, it's probably better if you're not. You need to just have sincerity of heart and say, look, 
This is what it says, and I believe that this is God's speech. It's not just a book. I mean, how silly would it be if there was a whole group of us that came down here on Sunday mornings so that we could read a book? So much more. Yeah, I mean, and we do that. That's literally what we do. But we, but it's, but it's the words of God. It's the it's the speech that God has wanted to communicate to us, and He chose to do it through the written word. And so, therefore, when the Holy Spirit gets involved, there's life. There's a vibrancy. There is there is something that happens beyond the physical in the hearts and minds of God's people as his word goes out. And these guys knew it. They had confidence in it. I think too, I remember just, uh, I remember the first time I had, I'd been a religious guy all my life, grew up in the LDS church. And the first time I went to a church that was teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And, and, and I remember so clearly thinking, what on earth is going on? My heart rate was quickening and my palms began to sweat. And this guy asked if I wanted to receive Christ while everybody's heads were down and I resisted. It was like, no, 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 you're not going to manipulate me with that religious stuff. you know. Blah, blah, blah. And then he just let this silence hang in the room. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. And, 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 and the Lord gave him a word. And after a while, it seemed like forever, he said, I don't know who you are, but I believe that the Spirit of God is moving on someone's heart here this morning. There's 350 people in this room. And I want to encourage you, my friend, if that's you, let go. Give your life to Christ. And I Lost it. (laughs) Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. So they go after the girls first. (laughs) No, I I, I want you to understand something about their culture. You got to realize Antioch is a pagan city, largely. Uh, The... And the, the, the Roman pantheon of gods, the Greek pantheon of gods, all of the garbage that these people had, they were surrounded, steeped in. And yeah, there were some who went to synagogue and who were paying attention to the law of Moses and all of that. But by and large, this was a pagan city. However, Judaism had become very attractive to the women for one reason. Because it portrayed mor- morality as being significant. Uh, the pagan religions, they were very sexual and very aberrant in their practices and in what they promoted. And it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. Uh, they were very man-centered and all of that. I mean, Jesus was the first person in history that elevated women to equal status as men. Judaism didn't go that far, but it protected women from the immoral practices of the day. So when they go to the prominent women of the city, they're going to women who get where they're oriented from. So, and I believe that that's truly the best explanation why why Luke, when he's writing this, that he he talks about the prominent women of the city. Uh, And he goes to the chief men. So he's going to the power brokers <laughs> in Antioch. 
He, you know, these, the Jews, they, they're, they're pretty sharp when it comes to being shrewd and not in a good way. And so they go to the people who have power in the city. Now you gotta understand, these guys don't understand kingdom principles. I was talking to some people not long ago, uh, with a, a nonprofit that I'm involved in, and I would love to do some in-service work to teach the staff and volunteers kingdom principles. The primary one being it's not power authority that compels us, that we live under. It's servant authority. Jesus says, you want to be great? Go low. And and they don't go to the people who are lowly here. They go to the people who have power authority and the ones that they can get to do their bidding for them. Be careful If you have a position of authority over other people, be careful not to abuse that. Um, Yeah, I'm tempted to rabbit trail, but I don't want to because we'll run out of time. But just let it be known that the world runs on power authority. Well, we've got the power and you don't, so we're going to make sure that you understand that we're in charge. That's not how the kingdom runs. The kingdom runs, it operates on servant authority. You know, I understand that I have power, but in meekness, that power is under control. We'll talk about meekness in a minute. So the Jews stir up the prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. He said, you got to go. We don't like what you're saying. We don't like, we don't want to do business with the message. So therefore we're kicking you out. Doesn't make sense logically. It totally makes sense from a human standpoint because that's what humans do. I, I, I look around, I look at the, all of the false narratives that are in place out there in our culture and in, in politics and all of that. And I think, oh my goodness, how could people buy it? How could they be so ignorant? But you got to remember, you know, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, look, the natural man doesn't receive the things of God because they're foolishness to him. Absolutely foolish. He says, so if you're the natural man, he's, got, he's spiritually myopic. He only sees the natural. He only sees the temporal. But you, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, this is 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He says, you see through the eyes of the Spirit. You see not just the temporal, but you see in the spiritual realm. You have a whole different way of looking at things. And so therefore, you appraise all things because you see through the eyes of the Spirit. You also see through the eyes of the flesh. But you're appraised by no man because all they can see is the physical realm. All they can see is like this. These guys, they're envious. They they shouldn't have a crowd. We don't get crowds. Why should they have crowds? We need to get rid of these guys. They're speaking things that we don't like. Another thing about, and this is the beginning. It's not totally the beginning because we've already seen with Peter when we were looking at Peter here in the book of Acts that uh, they didn't like what he was saying either. But what's happening now as the gospel is being promoted among the Gentiles is the Jews, it drove them nuts. You mean I spent my entire life studying Torah? I spent my entire life being steeped in the law of Moses. 
And now you're saying that salvation is a free gift? Now you're saying that these scummy Gentiles can come in and they can just walk right in and sit down and have equal status as somebody as important as I am? No, 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 no. And they, that's part of why they rejected. They struggled. They did not like God's choice, his method of salvation. What do you mean? It's free. What do you mean you don't have to do anything? What do you mean it's grace? They also didn't like God's choice of Messiah. What do you mean Messiah came from that hick region of Galilee up in the northern part of the country? Any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come on. Shouldn't he be kind of an aristocratic guy? Maybe come from Jerusalem or roundabouts? It, 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 it made them kind of nuts inside. They, it, they did, God did not operate in a way that, that made sense to their minds, that they understood. And so therefore, rather than really take it in and pray about it and ask more questions and all of that, they rejected. And as we see here in rejecting, they're rejecting life itself because the only way that life comes, Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. Singular. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There's no other path to life. So essentially, they're locking themselves out. So they stir up this persecution and they expel these guys. They throw them out. (laughs) They were given a choice. They could respond to the message But they chose not to respond. They chose rather to retaliate. Say, no, we're not going to do business with the message. Now get out of here. We don't want to hear it. Verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they came to Iconium. Now, Iconium is another city in Galatia. We'll continue the series on the Galatians next week. uh, Starting with Iconium and then going to Lystra and Derby and all that. Some other cities, as we wrap up in chapter 14, they wrap up their first missionary journey and they head back to Antioch. And then we'll, we'll look at some things further, the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15 and all. But the point here is they, it says they, they shook the dust off their feet. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus said uh, <laughs> in Matthew 10, uh, Verse 14, when he was sending his guys out, Mary sent them out. He says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. For the Jewish mind, this is a form of saying, you're rejecting me, we're rejecting you. We're going to shake the dust off of our feet. And, and if you're a Jewish, you understood perfectly well what this meant. Now, I remember when Jesus said, I need to go to Samaria. And uh, when he would go, actually he needed to go to Galilee, but he walked right through Samaria. That's not what Jewish people did. Samaritans were looked upon with disgust. And they would actually hike down to the Jordan Rift. They would go down out of the mountains and hike up along the side of the Jordan River and then hike back over to Galilee, long trip, so that they would not have the dust of the Samaritans on their feet. Because that was unclean to them. They were, like like I said, disgusting. Now, the ridge route, they could have gone straight from Jerusalem to Galilee. And it was a not bad trip. It was a pretty short trip. 
But that meant that they had to go through Samaria. And that's why when Jesus goes to the woman at the well, that the guys come back and they're looking at him kind of <laughs> asconce because it's like, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus? Don't you realize who you're talking to? And that's why she says, why do you, a Jew, want water from me? Because that whole tension there. Well, Paul and Barnabas say essentially here, if you're not going to hear the message, we're going to go somewhere else. And we're going to shake the dust off our feet. In other words, you're rejecting us. We're just going to reject you. We're going to, we're going to walk away. And that's exactly what they do. So in verse 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, I just think, I think about when I've had a rough time with someone, I know, I know me. And if somebody's come against me, and they've like, you know, think about it. They, they like kick me out of their house or something. And it hasn't happened, at least not lately. But I mean, if somebody has got, been very aggressive towards me, it's kind of easy for me to go off and want to just lick my wounds. Well, I'm bummed out. I, I feel, could I have said it differently? Could it, you know, you go through the whole 20 questions thing and all of that. It's not what it says here. It says they were filled with joy. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they essentially said, you're not going to receive the message. We'll go somewhere else. And I think it was kind of like they said, all right, we're going to, we're kicking you out of the city. And they said, you don't have to kick us out. We're leaving. Uh, that's what's implied here in the text. So, but as we look at this gang, as we wrap up, uh, you know me, I've got some questions. <laughs> I want to look at uh, how do we apply this to our own lives individually? And, and so just want to invite you to allow the Spirit of God to minister to your heart, to allow these truths to penetrate uh, and, and ask yourself the questions that I'm going to pose. The first is, are you hungry for God? I mean, hungry for God. I got to thinking about this, was praying about this, and, and I, I believe the Lord directed me to, again, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Because there's a progression there, the earmarks of someone who is hungry for God. And the Beatitudes. Now, understand the Beatitudes are not do-attitudes. <laughs> they're Beatitudes, they're ways that we are, not things that we do. It will manifest in things that I do, but it starts in the heart. And, and so what he's talking about are heart issues here. And when he says blessed, that means you're happy. That means you're blessed. Uh, he says blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? What he means is the same thing that happened with these Gentiles in Antioch they realized their need. They saw that Judaism wasn't getting it when it came to, do I choose between law or grace? Do I choose between the rigidness of Moses or the love of God poured out through Jesus? And they were hungry. There was a, a thirst in them. There was a hunger in them. They could not wait to get out of the synagogue so they could go up to Paul and Barnabas themselves and say, we, we want more. Just give us more. 
And they, they couldn't wait to go tell their buddies and their friends, their family. And then the whole city comes back the next week. That's spiritual hunger. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, you're poor in spirit. And that's yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's where you realize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. You realize you've got nothing to offer. You, it's, you are not part of the equation when it comes to the work that needs to be done for salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You realize your need and you're broken about it. Blessed are those who mourn. I realize that there's no way that I can approach you in my own stuff, Lord. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, you hear people talk about narcissists, somebody who's pretty hung on themselves, self-important, make sure that theirs is first. And you know, A meek person is the opposite. It's the polar opposite of a narcissist. A meek person is somebody that bears up under trial. Broke my heart. I was reading what Patrick Farrington wrote the other night. Uh, when he said, you know, we know that our daughter is with the Lord. And I thought, that's meekness. He's he's just trying to process this pain and he's bearing up. And I'm sorry, Nance. And I know I, I know that. I know that pain personally. And it's, just pray for them. But my point is, is blessed are the meek, people that understand, that, that see life through the lens of the big picture. And, and it, it, literally, meekness means power under control. I've got the power. I could tell you <laughs> where you can go. You know, like the guys, the Jews here with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas, they roll with it because they're meek. And meekness is part of what it is to understand your place in the big picture. He goes on to say uh, that these are the ones who will inherit the earth. And finally, in verse 6 of Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger, is that word hunger, and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. And that's what we see happening in Antioch here. We see the people having a hunger and a thirst, and they're saying, I want more, and they get more. Folks, God has given us one of the functions of grace is that the moment of my salvation, I have received everything in, a, in overabundant measure than I will ever receive from the Lord. That's an absolute. That's a guarantee. However, it's progressive as I grow and I want more and I have a spiritual hunger that he satisfies that hunger, that he continually gives me handfuls of grace and handfuls of understanding. So are you hungry? Are you hungry for God? Second thing I want to bring up is what attracts you? Is it the power of novelty or the power of the Holy Spirit? Power of the Word of God. In the Word of God, in verse 44, the Word of God. In verse 46, the Word of God. In verse 48, the Word of the Lord. In verse 49, the Word of the Lord. It's all through here. Paul and Barnabas knew that it wasn't them. It wasn't because they had some parlor trick. I mean, it recorded here in the book of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 8, there is a guy and he did essentially what were parlor tricks. He attracted people with the power of novelty. 
And he got told what to do with it. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who pre- previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. That's a hint. <laughs> to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. How many times do you see charlatans out there making that claim? Ha, man, follow my movement. I've got the great power of God. Let me take my coat off and throw it across and watch everybody fall over or whatever. You might as well be going to see David Copperfield. He's a lot better. Since they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. And and what he ends up doing, again, paraphrase, he goes up to Peter and says, let me buy some of that power. I see the power of the Holy Spirit, man. Let me buy some of that. And Peter sharply, sternly rebukes him. He says, your money perish with you. Get out of here, essentially. So what attracts you? And I know, I, I like a good show, like I said. But I've got to be careful to not allow my heart to get drawn away from what's important. Because we all love things that are novel. I mean, it's, just, it's not that that's wrong necessarily. It's just when that replaces discipleship, when it replaces a hunger for God's word, that we're headed for troubles. Lastly, how's it going with handling people who are either standing against you or coming against you? How's it going with that? I'm a sensitive guy. I get hurt. <laughs> I get my feelings hurt. I I do. I mean, you know, and uh, ask my wife. (laughs) Probably drives her crazy. Folks, the key, I think, in this, uh, again, some advice that was given to me by my pastor for many years. uh, He said, John, you need to learn to have a soft heart and a thick hide. And both of those are important. You got to understand that people don't want to hear the message very often that we want to bring to them. Why? John writes it, he says, because their deeds are evil. They love darkness more than they love light. And, And understand that. It's not personal. He says, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. If you are standing up for what's right, if you are sharing the truth, very often people will resort to coming against the bearer of truth because they don't want to do business with the truth. Understand that. Understand there's a spiritual dynamic at work and it's actually proof that something got under their skin. And these guys, they, they couldn't handle it to the point where they stirred up the leaders in the city, got them thrown out. But Paul and Barnabas, they shook the, the dust off their feet and they continued being filled with the Spirit and with great joy, because they understood the nature of the message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this wonderful chapter in Acts, and and Lord, I pray that you would work in us, that the fruit of your Holy Spirit would manifest in our lives in greater measure. I know I want more of you, God. I pray that that would be the attitude of each heart here, that as we grow, as we understand, as we grasp things in greater measure, that it wouldn't simply be so that we could hide those things away, 
but so that we could be more useful to you, so that we could be more vocal in our witness, so that we could have boldness in sharing the truth of the gospel. And Lord, I I pray for myself. I know that there's a certain aspect of man pleaser in me, and I don't want to be going and working for the uh, to please men but i want to please you and i pray that for my brothers and sisters here those catching this online that you would work in us and lord that you would grow your church one heart at a time we pray lord for hearts to be revived and that beginning here and spreading outward that you would just continue to do that work that only you can do i pray for a yieldedness lord thank you for your love Especially thank you for your grace. It's just nothing like walking in grace, standing in your grace, abiding in your grace, which is poured out in abundant measure on each of our lives. We thank you now. We ask it in Jesus' name. They said, Amen.